you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 12. Ezekiel chapter 12. So far, the book of Ezekiel has consisted mainly of the message that Jerusalem is doomed. Ezekiel and the exiles are in Babylon, but there are still people back home in Jerusalem and Judah. Twice Jerusalem has been taken. The third and final time that it will be taken and destroyed and the temple destroyed is about to happen. This is the message of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has given, I think, adequate justification for why this should happen. He has talked about the sin of the people back in Jerusalem and Judah, both religious and moral, which will bring about this judgment. We looked at the fact that they were doing pagan worship on the temple grounds, so that's certainly something deserving of punishment. But what about moral iniquity or moral sin? Well, the early part of chapter 11, which we didn't go over that much in detail, because frankly, I think what Ezekiel intends is not as clear as we might hope. He said in verse number two, son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in the city. And then verse number five, this is what the Lord the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and he told me, this is what the Lord says. This is, that is what you are saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in the city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown out there are the meat, and the city is the pot, but I will drive you out. So there has, in fact, been beyond just sheer paganism, There has been violence. There have been killing, killing many people. They have plotted evil. They have given bad advice. And so, yes, judgment is in fact justified. Beginning in chapter 12, where we are today, we have a series of actions and oracles, that is, acted out lessons, as well as messages from God in, in verbal form. Primarily, it is to respond to possible objections where people are like, okay, yes, Lord, we know the people back home, they're not doing what they should do, but you're going to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is doomed. The temple is doomed. This doesn't seem right. You may remember that in chapters 4 and 5, uh, Ezekiel did a series of acted out signs. First of all, he made sort of a miniature version of Jerusalem in his house and put up uh, siege against it and then put an iron plate basically saying this is something that's going to happen and then he laid on his one side for 390 days now on the right side for 40 days uh, exactly they are supposed to represent the years of punishment coming upon God's people and then there was the famine Ezekiel was to make a bread of a mixture of ingredients ingredients that don't normally go together and he was to eat eight ounces of this bread a day and drink a pint of water. This is starvation rations by any measure, but this is what is going to happen to the people of Jerusalem. Then lastly, there was the threefold fate of the people in Jerusalem. He was to shave his head with a sword, not something normally done, and to shave off his beard as well, and then divide up the hair into three parts. Uh, A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside the city. A third will fall by the sword outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
and a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Again, people would object. This is just too much. This, okay, we've done bad things, they've done bad things, but this is just too much. Their objections are raised, and Ezekiel will, in fact, demolish them. Among the objections are the following. First of all, we've heard this all before. You know, we've been hearing from the prophets for years, for decades, that judgment is coming, and nothing has happened. Well, when you think about it, that's kind of a foolish objection because where are you guys right now? <laughs> You're in Babylon, okay? You're not back in Jerusalem, so that's not actually a very good argument. The second argument is that there are, or the second problem is that there are false prophets who are saying the opposite of what Ezekiel is saying. They also are saying the opposite of what Jeremiah is saying. They say there will be peace and safety. You guys don't need to worry about anything. And then thirdly, there are people who believe that it will be impossible for God to cast away his people. These are the chosen people. He made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They were at Sinai, the covenant, and now God is going to cast them away. It doesn't seem possible. So there must be this, this magical trick. Somehow they're going to be miraculously delivered. They will be delivered either because there are some good people left, okay, or because God is just merciful, his covenant mercies. Before Ezekiel deals with these objections, there are still some more acted out scenes, some more symbolic actions to perform. This time, we are told with an audience. We don't know in chapters 4 and 5, You know, when he laid on his side for 390 days and then 40 on the other side. We don't know if anybody was watching him. Because at that point, we don't know if they knew he was a prophet. Now they know he's a prophet. Now he has an audience. Look, if you would, in chapter 12, the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to to hear, but do not hear. They are a rebellious people. Therefore, son of man, pack your belongings for exile, and in the daytime, as they watch, set out and go from where you are to another place. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. During the daytime, while they watch, bring out your belongings, packed for exile. Then in the evening, while they are watching, go out like those who go into exile. While they watch, dig through the wall and take your belongings out through it. Put them on your shoulder as they are watching and carry them out at dusk. Cover your face so you, that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. The things to notice here, did you catch, these are a rebellious people. <laughs> Three times it is mentioned, okay? And they have eyes to see, but do not see. They have ears to hear, but do not hear. Um, The message is being given to them, but they won't necessarily hear it or understand it. The message is being spoken, though, and it is being acted out. So they can't say, well, we didn't know. The message was given. They simply do not listen. Secondly, Ezekiel is to pack up as though he's going into exile. They did that before. It's been some 11 years, I think, since they came out of Jerusalem into exile. So he packs up his belongings. Okay. Then he is to travel to another place. 
in the daytime. And then he's to go back and then dig a hole in the wall at nighttime and then go through that hole and then walk off to some place covering his eyes so that he can't see where he's going. And Ezekiel did exactly what he was told if you look at verse number seven. So I did as I was commanded. During the day I brought out my things packed for exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands. I took my belongings out at dusk, carrying them on my shoulders while they watched. What does it all mean? What is implied is that Ezekiel doesn't know what it means. God tells him to do this and he does it, okay? But what does it mean? Look at verse number eight. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, do not, did not that rebellious house of Israel ask you, what are you doing? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and the whole house of Israel who are there. Okay, just a, a note, we'll keep reading in a minute. But all of these oracles and previous signs are about Jerusalem and the people living in Judah. Ezekiel is not speaking to them. He is speaking to the people who were with him in Babylon. But he's telling them, this is what's going to happen back home. Verse 11, say to them, I am assigned to you as I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile as captives. So Ezekiel is the object lesson. Verse 12, the prince among them will put his things on his shoulder at dusk and leave. And uh, let's see. A hole will be dug in the wall for him to go through. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land. I will spread out my net, or spread my net for him, and he will be taught, be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it, and there he will die. I will scatter to the winds all those around him, his staff and all his troops, and I will pursue them with drawn sword. They will know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries but I will spare a few of them from the sword, famine, and plague, so that in the nations where they go, they may acknowledge all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The prince here is Zedekiah. He is the king in Jerusalem, and he will try to escape. He is surrounded by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar's armies have surrounded him. And we are told in four different places, there are four accounts of what happens to Zedekiah. He and his soldiers and some of his family sneak out through a breach in the wall at nighttime, just like Ezekiel did. They go out, but in fact, they are captured and Zedekiah's eyes are put out. He does not see anymore. His eyes are taken out. I'm not sure if this is what it means when it says that Ezekiel is to cover his face so he can't see where he's going. That, in fact, may be the case. What Zedekiah and Jerusalem failed to recognize, they had been told, but they failed to realize, that it isn't Nebuchadnezzar who is their primary problem. It is the Lord. It isn't just the Babylonians who are fighting against them. It is the Lord. God is against them for their many sins. I will spread my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, so he will not see it, and there he will die. I will scatter to the winds all those around him. But verse number 16, there is again a word of hope, but I will spare a few from the sword, famine, and plague. And then, as always, a word of instruction, then they will know that I am the Lord. The second 
symbolic action is much briefer. If you look at verses 17 to 20, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, tremble as you eat your food and shudder in fear as you drink your water. Say to the people of the land, this is what the sovereign Lord says about those living in Jerusalem in the land of Israel. They will eat their food in anxiety and drink their water in despair, for the land will be stripped of everything in it because of the violence of all who live there. The inhabited towns will be laid waste and the land will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Um, Not sure how Ezekiel was supposed to do this, but he was in fact to tremble as he ate his food and he was to shudder as he drank his water. This was to illustrate the terror that was to come on the people who were in Jerusalem, but also the people in the countryside. And this is something new. At the, to this point, it's all been Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But now it's not just Jerusalem, it's the people who live outside the city as well. There is going to be terror. But there's an interesting uh, reference here to violence because of the violence of all who live there. We might be thinking that the only violence in play here is the Babylonians against the Jews. But even within the Jewish community, they are committing violence against each other. They live in a climate of violence. But then again, we have a word of instruction, then you will know that I am the Lord. In the passages that follow, the issue of the false prophets is addressed. See, Ezekiel is saying, this is what the Lord says. But there are other people who are saying, This is what the Lord says, and they are saying the opposite of what Ezekiel says. So who's right? It's a problem that the Old Testament prophets faced. Uh, I think a case in point is Jeremiah with Hananiah, the false prophet. Hananiah tells Jeremiah in the temple, in the presence of the priests and the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. It's like, yes, these people have gone into exile, but within two years, they're coming back. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar took all the the precious things from the temple. He's going to bring them back as well. And Jeremiah responds. He said, Amen. May the Lord do so. In other words, that's great if the Lord would do that. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. But simply put, Jeremiah says, it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Later, Jeremiah says to him, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. Yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against God. And in the seventh month of that year, Hananiah the prophet died. Two months after making this false prophecy, he is dead. But in those two months, who are the people supposed to believe? And now in Babylon, in the exiles... Ezekiel is saying one thing and false prophets are saying something else. Who are you to believe? The early church faced a similar problem when we had false teachers going around claiming to speak in the name of the Lord. This is something we saw in our study of 1 John. 
The problem is that false teachers usually have a nicer message, if I could put it that way. The message that Ezekiel and other Old Testament prophets proclaimed was unpopular and it was unacceptable. So people are not inclined to listen to Ezekiel because like, man, it's just bad, bad news. It's just bad news. You have the story of King Ahab wants to go into battle with the king of Judah and the king of Judah says, listen, we need, a prop- we need the prophets to tell us what to do. And all the false prophets say, go, go, you'll win. And so they, the king of Judah says, wait a minute, don't you have like a prophet of God who can speak? And Ahab said, yeah, there's this guy, but he always says bad things about me. That's what Ezekiel is seen as, only prophesying doom and gloom. There's something else. As I told you, the prophecies haven't been fulfilled. And so for many people, they took comfort in the fact, okay, that's going to happen, but that's way down the line. That's in the distant future. Ezekiel will address this. Chapter 12, beginning at verse 21. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, what is this proverb you have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Time goes and it still hasn't come to pass. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to put an end to this proverb and they will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled. For there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will and it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you rebellious house, I will fulfill what I say, or whatever I say, declares the sovereign Lord. This is fairly clear. The people had always said, yeah, visions happen, yeah, but that's, that's way down the road, okay? Um, hasn't happened yet. And God says, no, guess what? It's going to happen, and it's going to happen very soon. I will fulfill whatever I say, says the Sovereign Lord. That's the first saying. There's a popular saying among the Jews. There's a second one, and that is that the vision is about the distant future. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the house of Israel saying, the vision he sees is for many years from now. And he prophesies about the distant future. Therefore say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I will say will be fulfilled, declares the Sovereign Lord. Simply put, no more delays. Okay, no more delays. It's going to happen. So chapter 12 deals with the mistaken views of the people in exile. Where did they get these weird, these mistaken views? From false prophets. So now the Lord turns to the issue of false prophets. It is worth noting, and I find this strange, and I haven't quite reconciled why it's the case. They're false prophets, so I would think they shouldn't be called prophets at all. They should just be called false. But Hananiah is referred to as a false prophet, and these individuals are as well. Chapter 13, verse number 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. 
Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to... uh, You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations are a lie. They say the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Things to consider. Where do these false prophets, where do false prophets get their prophecies? Where do they get their message? Well, we're told here out of their own imagination and they follow their own spirit. God has not given them anything. It's something that they have made up out of their own. But they say, this is the word of the Lord. It is a fearful thing to speak the word of the Lord and yet If you're not speaking the word of the Lord, you're sort of fearless. And that's what we find in these false prophets. They are seen as jackals among ruins. That is to say, they do nothing constructive. Jackals are scavengers. They are opportunistic omnivores. They eat anything and everything given the opportunity. That's what these false prophets are like. They do not build up. They have not, in fact, helped to build up the people of Israel to fill in the walls, as it were. Therefore, they are false prophets. The next charge is in the same vein. Not only have they undermined the nation, now they are encouraging false security. Verse 8, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstorms hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. So I will spend my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. I will say to you, the wall is gone and so are those who whitewashed it. Those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the sovereign Lord. False prophets, at least at this point, are really followed. People like them because they promise peace. They say that there is peace when, in fact, there is no peace. And what they are doing, the analogy is, if you have a a wall that's not very strong, but you want it to look nice, you you whitewash it. That's a solution. It's not exactly a paint. It's a solution solution of water and lime. And you cover it up, and it looks like a strong wall. So the false prophets say peace 
and it looks like peace might be coming, but they are in fact false prophets. By the way, in, in modern English today, the word whitewash has come to mean a deliberate concealment of someone's mistakes or faults. That's, that's the metaphor that has come into our language, and that's what these false prophets are doing. They've got little or nothing, but they cover it up with whitewash, and so it looks like something that is sturdy. Their punishment is threefold. They will lose their place of honor. They will not be in the council of my people. They will not be listed in the records. That is, the civil register of full citizens of Israel. They will not be listed among the people of God. One of the most cherished rights of any Jewish male. And thirdly, they're not going back home. They are not going to go back to Israel. They will perish where they are. Interestingly enough, at this point, Ezekiel sort of turns, and so far he's been talking to men, false prophets. Now he talks to women, false prophetesses. Look, if you would, at verse, uh, verse 17. But before we get into it, it brings up an interesting issue. Do we actually have prophetesses in the Old Testament? Um, I would say there is not a class as such. We do have exceptions. Deborah in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 4. Huldah in 2 Kings, chapter 22. Miriam, the sister of Moses, is referred to as a prophetess. Um, they are the exceptions, but as we read this passage, I think you will get a clear sense that when Ezekiel says prophetess, it isn't like a female prophet. These are more like sorceresses uh, and, and witches because of the things that they do. Verse 17. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people and who prophesy out of their own imagination, prophesy against them. So they're like the men. It's out of their own imagination. Verse 18, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the women who sew, who sew magic charms on all their wrists and make veils of various lengths for the heads in order to ensnare people. Will you ensnare the lives of my people but preserve your own? You have profaned me among my people for a full handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. By lying to my people who listen to lies, you have killed those who should have not died and have spared those who should not live. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against your magic charms with which you ensnare people like birds, and I will tear them from your arms. I will set free the people that you ensnare like birds. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands. They will no longer fall prey to your power. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with your lies when I had brought them to no grief and because you encouraged the wicked not to turn from their evil ways and so save their lives. Therefore, you will no longer see false visions or practice divination. I will save my people from your hands and then you will know that I am the Lord. So apparently they made these magic charms, these amulets, um, in the Philippines, they're called anting anting. It's things that apparently this will protect you. This will bring you prosperity. Verse number 19, for a, full, uh, a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. We don't know if this is their payment. This is what they got paid for doing what they did. Or if this is what they used in some type of magical ceremony. We're simply not told. 
But like the men, false prophets, they give a false sense of security. But more than that, you know, they give a false sense of security, but they discourage the people who are actually doing the right thing. They dishearten the righteous with their lies. And they praise the people who are doing wickedly. Yeah, the Lord bless you in all that you're doing. But God gives words of encouragement. I will set the people free that you ensnare like birds. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands. I will save my people from your hands. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now we come to chapter 14. And the issue of idolatry comes up once again. But this time from a very different direction. It would seem that at this point in chapter 14, Ezekiel is finally recognized as a prophet. Okay. The elders come to him. They came to him to receive a word of, from the Lord. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Okay. This is very different from what we've seen previously. Previously, they've set up, people have set up idols in the temple grounds. Now we read that they've set up idols in their hearts. And here he's not speaking about the people back home. He's talking about the people in exile with him. Outwardly, they are followers of God. Outwardly, they worship God. But in their hearts, they have, in fact, embraced idols. They are, as God puts it, stumbling blocks. They will keep them from the truth. One of the things that people may not like about God is he demands exclusive allegiance. You can't serve God and mammon, Jesus tells us, God and money. You choose one or the other. And in our age, people would like to be able to do multiple. You know, I can do this and this, sort of a buffet of religious choices. And God's like, no, you serve me and no one else. They come to Ezekiel. We want to hear what the Lord has to say. But inwardly, they are worshiping false gods. Look at verse 4, if you would. Therefore, speak to them and tell them this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if a prophet is enticed to offer or to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed the prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, 
nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the Sovereign Lord. We've seen time and time again, idolatry. What is the answer to idolatry? What is the cure for idolatry? It's here. It's repentance. They are to repent. Uh, In the New Testament, much is made today that the word in Greek is metanoia, a change of mind, changing your mind. But we're not in the New Testament yet. We're still in the Old Testament. And repentance, interestingly, the word is return. And for people in exile, wow, this resonates. Because they're not back in the homeland. They're not back in the home country. And so when they are told repent, and the word is return, I think they get it. That it means, in fact, a return to the things of God. Like going back to the old country. It is worth noting in verse number 7 that it isn't only to the Jews, but any alien living in Israel. This would seem to indicate, unless we might think, well, this doesn't apply to us, that's Old Testament, that's the Jews in exile. I think the application is universal, that if, in fact, we are worshiping false gods and then we want to consult God, yeah, that's, that's just not going to work. The final argument that's put forward today, this is where we'll end, is what if, okay, let's say you have like a wicked city, Jerusalem, a wicked country like Judah, but you have righteous people there. I bet you God won't judge Jerusalem and Judah because there are righteous people there. The passage reminds me of Genesis chapter 18 where the Lord came to Abraham and says, listen, see Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm, I'm going to wipe them out. And Abraham, his nephew lives down there with his wife and two daughters. So Abraham says, you can't do this. This is, no, this is not what the righteous God, the judge of the whole earth, you can't do this. What if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you spare it? And God says, okay, for 50 people. And you know the story... It goes down to 45, to 40, to 30, to 20, and finally at 10. And the Lord says, if there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy. I will spare the cities. Always wondered why Abraham stopped at 10, because I think he was pretty sure there weren't 10 righteous people there. But the lesson seems to be there that, in fact, God would spare the cities if there were righteous people there. So Jeremiah is still back there. There's some good people back home. God won't let Jerusalem be destroyed. He won't let Judah fall because of the righteous people there. Well, they are wrong. Verse 12, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and their animals, Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through that country and they leave it childless and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beast, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. 
Or if I bring a sword against the country, that country and say, let the sword pass throughout the land and I kill its men and their animals. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons and daughters. They alone would be saved. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my wrath upon it through bloodshed, killing its men and animals. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. This is what the sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine, wild beast and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I brought upon Jerusalem, every disaster I brought upon it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. Bottom line. Let's say for the sake of argument, Ezekiel says, or God says through him, if back in Jerusalem right now, there was Noah, he'd been dead for several thousand years, Job, Daniel, so three righteous men. If these three righteous men were living in Jerusalem right now, only they would be spared. Their own family would not be spared. Their sons and daughters would not be spared. And certainly the city would not be spared. Don't think, oh, we've got good people here. The Lord won't do anything to us. We got good people here. We, not, we may not be very good, but we got good people here. And God will spare us. And God says, and if you'll notice, he seems to kind of redundant, keeps mentioning it over and over again. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. If Noah... Daniel and Job were here, the city will still be destroyed. <sighs> Certainly not what the people wanted to hear. Ezekiel must not be a very popular prophet among the people. Judgment is coming. Nothing can stop it. And it is going to be a terrible judgment. Something has been added here, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed. Before we were told, in fact, that there were three things that there would be, okay? That there would be the sword, that's the Babylonians. There would be famine because of the siege, okay? And there would be plague. A fourth thing is added now, wild beasts, wild animals, because now there's nothing to keep them out. Terrible, terrible judgment is coming on the people in Jerusalem and Judah. Question is, Will the people listen to Ezekiel? What we see, and I mentioned at the beginning, is that people thought that what Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the people before him had been saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. Because you guys have been talking and talking and talking, and nothing has happened. Which isn't true, but that's how they saw it. Secondly, there were false prophets who claimed authority, and they had a much more palatable message than did Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They promise peace and security. They're false prophets. And they think, yeah, there may be some really, really bad people here in Jerusalem, but we've got some good people too. And God won't, in fact, destroy us. Won't destroy the people in Jerusalem because we have these righteous people there. 
the application doesn't work, so bear with me and don't freak out. Okay. But as I was going through this passage of false prophets, I was reminded of what I've been hearing in the news this past week about the pandemic. That apparently we've been told some things that were not true. But for the past year and a half, we haven't known who to believe. Who do we believe? People say, follow the science. But then we find the scientists don't agree. And then we hear this week, scientists have been lying to us. Now transfer that feeling to the people in exile. And Ezekiel saying one thing and the false prophets are saying the opposite. Who do you believe? Who can you trust? Well, Ezekiel's message isn't very nice. It's not very palatable. Yes, we are in exile, but we hope one day to go home. And now Ezekiel's telling us there's not going to be a home to go to? That God's going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple? Yeah, I think I like this guy who says that there will be, in fact, peace. And one day we'll get to go home. So how do you know? How do you know who's telling the truth? I think it's a problem that's still with us today. I think the solution for us is a bit easier because we have scripture. If somebody says something contrary to scripture, we'd say, well, no, no, what you're saying is false because it doesn't line up with what we're told in scripture. But they don't have that at that point. Who do they listen to? There are two things to consider. The first is idolatry. If in fact you follow idols, and not just images, but hopes in your heart, the things that you live for, then you're not going to listen to the message. You're going to pick something else. So you need to get rid of idolatry. And the second thing is you need to repent. That's what Ezekiel, the word of the Lord through Ezekiel tells these people. You have idolatry, that's why you listen to false prophets. Do you want to know if I'm true or not? Repent. Return back to God. Don't play this, this, this two-faced two game where on the outside, I worship God, I follow Jehovah, I'm an Israelite, but in your heart, you're like the Babylonians. You follow false gods. You're a pagan. No, no, no. As long as you do that, as long as you're two-faced, you're not going to get the message. You're going to listen to false prophets. Do you want to know what the truth is? You need to get rid of idols things that you put your faith in, and return to God. I think the message is true today as well. There are false prophets in the church today, and, and, how, and people follow after them. But how are people to discern this person's a false prophet? If they allow you to keep your idols, they're a false prophet. If it's all about prosperity, if it's about your health, all these different things, security, that have become idols in your hearts, and these people promise that, okay, you, you know. On the other hand, if someone says, you need to repent, turn back to God, turn to the things of God, don't be two-faced, don't be sort of a Christian on the outside and a pagan on the inside, repent, confess your sins and return to God. It's one of the reasons we have the prayer of confession every Sunday because we recognize that we are sinners. 
by the grace of God, he has saved us, but we still sin. If we want to know what the truth is, we need to repent and rid ourselves of idols. Let's pray together. Our Father, how much easier it would be if we had some type of device that could tell us if somebody is telling the truth or not. If you could have some kind of portable lie detector. I think the people in exile with Ezekiel would have wanted that. Who's telling the truth, Ezekiel or the false prophets? But we don't have that. We have your spirit, the spirit of discernment. But there's something that blocks that. It's idolatry. Those things in our hearts and our lives that become more precious to us than you. And when that happens, we are more likely to believe a lie than the truth. We confess that we are sinners and that we have sinned. And that it is in our nature to want to put something in your place. We repent. We turn from that. We turn back to you. And in doing so, may we hear your truth and receive it. The time in which we live, science has become the new religion and scientists the new prophets. This past week, some have been unmasked as false prophets. There is great insecurity. May our trust be in you. That you are the Lord God Almighty and all things are in your hands. We thank you for your grace that you have spared us thus far. May our faith be in you. May we put away idols, the idol of security. We're in a new month, the month of June, almost halfway through this year. We're grateful for your grace. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence in the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.